1: little throat infection goes a long way towards uh, making me sit quietly, wishing that I could talk. And of course, it would be when there's lots of crazy stuff going on. So coming back, I'm coming back in style with my friend, Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today?
2: Great to be here, Brian. Thanks, as always, for having me on. I'm doing my best to uh, not let my faults <laughs> serve to be my undoing.
1: Right. Well, and what's the what's the what are the odds that I would end up with a bad case of raspy throat, can't talk, uh, when when we're shooting down UFOs?
2: Yeah, you know, it's just I was thinking about this the other day, and my girlfriend and I were talking about it. This this seems to be serial pattern of one bizarre happening after the next. You know, first it's the balloons walking across the country. Now it's UFOs being shot down. Then it's uh, a, a, a chemical explosion train wreck that nobody seems to be covering. And you don't know what to make of it other than it's just strange.
1: Well, I, as, as a general rule, I trust very, very little of what I hear from mainstream or legacy media sources. But uh, let's we'll, we'll put the UFOs off here for a minute. Let's talk about this train wreck mm-hmm. in Palestine, Ohio. I've seen the video and I've seen photos coming out of there that uh, it, it makes Mordor look like a pretty nice place to be. And yet I hear almost nothing in mainstream media about it.
2: Yeah, uh, the same here. Uh, I regularly scan all of the legacy so-called mainstream media sites, and there has been little to no coverage of it, which is interesting to me because this is a serious thing, as I understand it. It, uh, The chemicals that were released are very toxic, very dangerous, and they've been uh, dispersed pretty widely to the extent that this is a, a definite environmental situation, a real one. And I juxtapose that with the hysteria that we all endured a couple of years ago about all oh, the cases, the cases. Every so-called case became uh, a breathless announcement, uh, you know, as if to imply that somebody's going to die. Whereas now we've got this this instance of probably a lot of people are going to end up dying from this, or at least getting sick. There're going to be lots of problems, and I cannot fathom other than absolute laziness the reason for the lack of reporting on it.
1: Yeah, I. Uh... Uh, you know, there, there are some things that, that I'm thinking, why aren't they saying more about this? And then there's other things like, for instance, well, the government has shot down another unidentified object over mm-hmm. Lake Huron or whatever. And I think, OK, I don't trust that either. In fact, I, I have a really strong sense that somebody's yanking our chains hard. And, and it makes me wonder, what are they wanting us not to see?
2: Yeah, I think that's the the common denominator here. And the, the, the most important thing is that they are yanking our chains and that We can no longer trust anything that they say. Nothing can be taken at face value. We now live at a time where every source of information other than the alternative media that has established its trustworthiness must be presumed untrustworthy. And everything that they say should be questioned, checked, uh, and is probably on the face of it not true.
1: Yep. It's it's a time where if you want to be a truth seeker or you want to at least be, you know, rooted in reality, you got your work cut out for you because there's a whole apparatus that seems designed to keep us from seeing the truth.
2: Yeah, you know, and with regard to this train, this train business, something else occurs to me too. Uh, the, the media, and I mean by the media, the mainstream legacy media has become... Uh, a propaganda entity. It it no longer does journalism. You know, journalism used to be you go out and you visit a place where the news is happening and you talk to the people who are affected and you find out what's going on and you report on it. That's what journalism used to be all about. Now it's just about commenting. Everything is editorializing and, and most of these mainstream people are just repeating and regurgitating what somebody else has already said, probably the talking points that they got from Pfizer, which seems to sponsor every mainstream news program. You and I got a laugh out of that. I sent you a little clip of a, a video that just compiled all of these these news programs together, and every single one of them was sponsored by Pfizer.
1: Yep, yep. It's it's very telling, and it's interesting too that uh, you know Pfizer is also sponsoring you know the the Grammys and other you know pop culture things. Obviously, there's a lot of money to go around, and why not? You know, they they did quite well on the on the whole vaccine thing, but uh, it seems like they have. Undue influence within our culture.
2: Well, it's easy to do well when you've got a gun and you can point at somebody's head and say, give me your money. And effectively, that's what's happened with regard to these pharmaceutical cartels and not just them. You know, uh, I've ranted for years about how the insurance mafia has leveraged the power of the government to force you to open your wallet or purse, as the case may be, and hand over money. So essentially, it's the mugger model writ large that we're dealing with now.
1: Well, and we also have the added pressure of uh, not just uh, the press, but certain people within government uh, advocating that, well, we need to do more to stop misinformation. I, did you see the the Brookings Institute's uh, article that came out last week about, you know, the problem is these podcasts out there, they're spreading misinformation and, and <laughs> they, they brag about they can say anything they want.
2: You know, it'd be funny if it weren't so tragic because everything that they styled misinformation, everything, literally, over the past three years has proved to be the truth, whereas everything that they put forward as being the truth has proved to be misinformation.
1: Yeah. And, and you would think that uh, that would be something people universally would catch on to, but apparently there are still folks uh, looking for a reason to believe.
2: Well, and also f- to suppress, uh, you know, the WF is W.E.F. is actively working to characterize any disagreement, any public statement of questioning of whatever the narrative is, the officially anointed uh, narrative, as being uh, an actionable defense, not just misinformation that could get you kicked off of a social media platform, but that could send the cops to your door. You know, we got a preview of this in Australia where the cops went to people's homes because they had posted something on Facebook, let's say, uh, questioning wearing face masks. That's it. That became an actionable offense. You know, you had cops showing up. And that's the sort of thing they want, because what they want above all is to, is to make it legally impermissible for people to question anything that they say.
1: Which makes me more determined than ever to question it loudly.
2: Oh, it's imperative, because if we, it, it, yeah, no, it's, it's a moral imperative, because if we do not, if we cede that power, we are lost. We will no longer have the power to prevent our complete and total enslavement by them. They will be able to throw us in prison at will. And I know it sounds extreme, but it's already happened, and it is happening. And there will be very little that we can do about it within the system. The freedom of speech, our ability to speak, has got to be preserved at all costs.
1: I agree. I want to pivot now to one of the columns that you shared last week. Actually, no, this was just a couple days ago. How to get back to where we started from. This one really Mm -hmm. struck a nerve with me, Eric, because – you know, th- there's a great sense that I've had for years that we are way off course. And so I would love for you to share, share with our audience mm-hmm. here, what, uh, what does it take to get back on, pa- on the path?
2: Well, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated subject. And I felt the same way. It was a rainy, bleary day. And I, I just started thinking about that feeling that we all have, that things are awry, that we're not headed in the right direction. This is sort of a, a gestalt, I think, that, that we all are aware of. So I got to thinking, well, how how do we find our way back? And I use the analogy of being out in the woods and hiking. I'm a big hiker. I like to do that. And if you've done that, you know probably sometimes you've wandered off the trail and you find yourself lost. And now you've got to figure out how to find the trailhead again and go back. So that was the the way I I got into this topic. And I got to thinking about we don't have a lot of power uh, writ large, but we have an immense amount of power individually to conduct our own lives and to to do the right thing and to not let our bad habits uh, get the better of us. You know, I I mentioned that at the beginning of the show. And what I meant by that was to not let cowardice, let's use the direct word, get the better of us, to be afraid to speak up, to say something, and if necessary, to do something when we are confronted with things that are bad, you know, whether they're bad people or bad ideas, uh, we should stand up to these things and stand for what's right. That's something that used to be considered an obligation, particularly of men, but generally of adults. And that's one way that we find our way back to where we once were.
1: Amen. Look, I see a lot of good people who voluntarily surrender their individuality of thought and embrace groupthink just because they know that's how you gain acceptance in society and it's how you avoid the pain of criticism. We've got to be less averse to that kind of pain.
2: That and also I think we need to return to something that the left likes to talk about, which they talk about very disingenuously. You hear them talking about being respectful of other people. But they always uh, there's always an undercurrent of force in that, meaning a government telling you what you may and may not do and what you may and may not say. I think that it's more important to recover the deeper meaning of that, which is to respect other people's right to disagree with you and to live their lives differently. And as long as what they're doing is not harming you or harming another innocent person, that you have an obligation, like it or not, to leave them be and respect their right to do what they're doing, just as they have an obligation to respect the same for you.
1: Hey Amen. Look, how many people drive different makes of cars or wear different types of shoes than you do? But you don't feel the need to force them to hey you have to do this you know. Now there there may be some, you know, variance there with the Ford and Chevy owners, you know, back and forth, but you get the the point. We can voluntarily yeah choose different things without having to, to bring it to a matter of well I've got to compel you to do this. And they have
2: been using this this uh this corrosive uh instinct that people have been encouraged to develop of uh being a busybody of not merely noting, hey, you know, that guy's doing something I probably wouldn't do myself, but go in peace. If you're you know, you're you're a free person, you have that right, to being this busybody, to telling other people
0: what to do and to demanding that the government make them do it.
1: We gotta take a break. We'll be back in just a few
0: moments. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. All right, Eric, you kind of rocked my world <laughs> a little bit uh, recently with your article about uh, about uh, the trap is being sprung on <laughs> yep. people who drive gas cars. And and yeah. I got to admit, this one got my attention. What's, what's the story here?
2: Well, you know, let's see. I was watching some uh, videos about the Napoleonic Wars the other day. Bear with me a minute. And just watching... Uh, the narrator talked about Napoleon's strategies and how he would uh, encircle and envelop the enemy. Well, the enemy that's being encircled is our cars <laughs> and our our freedom to drive them. And by now, I'm hoping that people have begun to notice that. And one of the ways that cars are being attacked again uh, is uh, via this idea that they should have the same kind of particulate traps and and uh, you know you know about DEF, diesel exhaust fluid. Similar, something similar to that, that that should be uh, required of all new cars to deal with their particulate emissions. And the irony is the only reason that modern cars have increased particulate emissions is precisely because of government regulations that have forced car companies to fit their cars with these tiny little highly turbocharged engines that are direct-injected and that use extremely thin viscosity oil, and some of that seeps past the, uh, uh, the, 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 the piston rings and gets consumed and comes out the tailpipe. And now it's not even a significant amount. You do you notice any cars belching soot as you drive down the road?
1: No, not at Probably all.
2: Probably not. But you know, they have managed to condition the public to whenever they hear that word, emissions. You know, they somehow the 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 you know the hypnotism still works. People, even though they can look outside and say, you know, the sky's blue, everything's fine. I'm not choking on on smog or exhaust, but nonetheless they managed to use this ancient idea that goes back to the 70s when there was smog and there was pollution and there was an issue and it needed to be dealt with to, to create this idea that we've got to do something, as again, the usual crisis management kind of theater. And the, these particular traps they, they want to put on cars are going to, once again, make it more expensive and, and more hassle, more maintenance, more repair, all of that, which once again serves the purpose of making people just sick of dealing with cars, which is what they want. They want us to be tired of cars, so as to get us out of cars.
1: And I think somebody actually in the last week came out and 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 said. And I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm racking my brain to think who it was, but they came right out and said um, that uh, for us to, to to really get the electrification of vehicles, we're going to have to give up the concept of private vehicles.
2: Yes, exactly. And I think it was Klaus Schwab, he uh, or he or some of one of his proxies at the WEF. Uh, went a little even farther than that and said that the ownership of a private vehicle is, quote, immoral and unsustainable.
1: Wow. Well, let me register my strong disagreement.
2: <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> and note, you know, I, I saw a clip. Uh, this was one of those great clips of the Rebel News guys who were uh, tracking down old Klaus to confront him with some questions. And Klaus scuttled away to his uh, not electric Audi limo which was then followed by uh, several not-electric vehicles carrying his security heavies. So, again, we just have an example of the grotesque hypocrisy of these people who very clearly want to take us out of cars, but they don't want to take themselves out of cars. And they certainly don't want an electric car when they can have a nice big gas-guzzling car.
1: Yeah, it's—I don't know. There's so many places where I'm looking that I'm going to have to draw the line. (laughs) This is just another one here. Um, I don't like the idea that uh, that they want to to turn you know gas engines into basically the equivalent of diesel. I my son has a Volkswagen TDI and and it's mm-hmm. a great car, but uh, it's a hassle. And and sometimes yeah. it will falsely tell him you need more diesel exhaust fluid when he mm-hmm. just you know filled it up. It's it's just one more layer of complexity, one more thing that can go wrong. And I don't know you know that it that it necessarily improves a lot.
2: Well, it does improve one thing. For example, with regard to diesels, it's not an accident that they imposed all of this on diesels at just about the exact same moment in time when they began to really push electric vehicles hard. You know, this was around 2016. Remember when the the thing broke about uh, Volkswagen's cheating diesels? They had to do something about diesels at that time because diesels were experiencing a resurgence. You may remember, you know, not just Volkswagen, but a number of manufacturers were bringing uh, high-mileage, high-efficiency diesels onto the market. And who in the world is going to go out and buy a $50,000 Tesla that goes 300 miles when you can go out, and you could, buy a $23,000 Jetta TDI that will go 700 miles, right? you know, and takes just a couple of minutes to refuel, and uh, will probably last 300,000 miles because diesels are inherently longer-lived than gas engines. So, you know, diesel engines had to be done away with, and they've succeeded.
1: You pointed out in your article, too, though, that even gas engines have come... You know, light years from from the days when you had to tune it up because it didn't have um, yeah. electronic fuel injection. You know, you'd foul the the spark plugs and whatnot. But really, they they tend to run very good for a long time,
2: an immensely long time. You know, most manufacturers will warrant the car is not needing a tune up for a hundred thousand miles, uh, and even at a hundred thousand miles, generally, all a car will typically need is a new set of spark plugs, and not because they're fouled; they just wear. You know, over time, so replacing them is. A part of the deal, but it's not this elaborate and regular procedure that it did used to be back in the day when cars didn't have fuel injection and had carburetors. You know, they've become extremely clean, and that again is a problem from the standpoint of these people who have tried to vilify cars and used emissions as the excuse. And I think that gets us to the core point here, which is is that these people are disingenuous. They're not actually concerned about emissions. They use emissions as the excuse to push us out of cars.
1: Yep, yep. And the idea being that, uh, you know, they want us in electric cars, which are more easily controlled. You can be told, don't charge your cars during these peak hours and so forth. Um, and, and, and I think you just did something recently on kill switches, too. And it seems to me.
2: Yeah, it's just actually, it, it just published that about an hour ago. And exactly. And that's another one of these pincer movements. The Biden thing, decreed, issued a, a fatwa, I, mean, I like to call it that because that's what it is. You know, it's interesting that the president, who used to have the responsibility to see to it that the laws were enforced, now just hurls laws, you know, with as legislative authority. But anyway, he decreed that beginning with the 2026 model years, all new vehicles must have what's called a kill switch. And ostensibly, this is to prevent the dangerous drunk drivers from running amok. But what it means is that the government will have the power to shut your vehicle off at any time for any reason that it wants to. And that's what they want, ultimately.
1: Wow. All right. I'm going to shift gears one last time. There's one other article I I wanted to ask you about. And this was uh, actually I guess this is just a story. Um, So Seymour Hirsch has come out and said, look, I'm connecting the dots that the U.S. Mm -hmm. in conjunction with Norway blew up Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Yeah. Um, What are your thoughts on this?
2: I, well, my thoughts are that I'm pretty alarmed by it. Uh, can you imagine what would happen if uh, it turned out to be the case that, let's say, an oil derrick in the Gulf of Mexico uh, blew up and it were established that Russia had sent a Spetsnaz team out there uh, and blown up one of our oil rigs? This is playing with fire. You know, this is something that by any standard could be considered an act of war. And I do not fathom or understand why there is this, reckless urgency to provoke the russians into a war over ukraine i you know i i do feel bad on a human level for the people in ukraine who are suffering but there's suffering going on all over the world in all kinds of countries and for whatever bizarre reason that has yet to be fully plumbed we are going to go into we're going to risk world war three over ukraine and i think it really is important to figure out exactly why the people who are pushing for this want that
1: (laughs) It does feel like we're being steered into a head-on collision with Russia. And th- I think the most alarming headline I saw this last week was China demands answers regarding the destruction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I mean, look. They ought I, to.
2: You know, we we hear all the time about rogue states and terrorist actions. Well, I mean, by what other, what other definition applies here? We, we send our people, uh, you know, under the official auspices, well, not official, but the auspices of the government of the United States sends people, military people, to a place that's outside of our uh, our purview, you know, we have no business being there, and engages in the destruction of the property, the infrastructure of a, another sovereign power. That that's a really uh, astounding thing.
1: And it wouldn't just be hurting Russia. I mean, it's basically it's it's hurting all of Europe because of the gas that they well, were depending on.
2: Yeah, and that and that too was on purpose. You know, the the intent was to turn Germany away from Russia, because Russia, of course, had been supplying Germany with natural gas, and uh, the idea, as I understand it, was to make Germany more dependent on our natural gas, which we were gonna ship across the ocean on on container ships to the Germans at much higher prices and costs. Also, this insane demented idea that, you know, Russia uh, has to be pushed into a corner. Right. Uh, and we have to be the unipower.
0: Gotta stop you here, but Eric, thanks so much for being yep. my guest today. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. All right. Welcome back to the show. Hey, again, I want to thank
1: those of you who reached out and said, hey, where you been Hyde? (laughs) What's going on? And it wasn't that I got lazy or anything, but uh, man, I have to tell you, whatever bug is going around, it's the kind of bug that goes right for the throat. And that's what it did for me. And so I had to give my voice a couple of days rest because otherwise I literally talk myself out of a job and that's no fun. But I'm back and I have so much to share. I mean, for crying out wouldn't it just be my luck? The day they start shooting down UFOs, (laughs) that's the day that uh, I can't really talk, so I guess I'll just have to sit back and be a spectator. Now, for those who are interested, I did publish my show notes each day, even though I wasn't on the air. You'll still find lots of thought-provoking commentaries and articles to to look at that should hopefully help expand your perspective of the world. You don't have to agree with them. They're they're there to provide some added insight and a little more well-rounded view. One of the ones that uh, I was so happy to see... Landed my my inbox on my email account was Paul Rosenberg's latest essay that says being a placeholder isn't enough when it comes to making the difference that you were born to make. Now, this is important. I think most of us really underestimate our ability to impact the world around us. And Paul Rosenberg says everything that's normal in the Western system trains us to be a placeholder. Here's what he means by that. He says you're expected to attend the schools to which you're assigned and complete the necessary programs. And by doing that, you can attain a nice slot in the big machine. Then you'll function in that general capacity, probably for many years. And that's what's called success. You'll be able to get car loans, a house loan, maybe even 2.1 children. And then when you're too old or too sick to continue, the machine will drop you out and a new person will be called in to fill your slot. A few years later, you'll die, and people will say nice things about you. You will have been a placeholder, perhaps a mildly rewarded one, but that's all. His point here is, it isn't enough. We are unlimited beings. And he says all of us can create willfully. All of us are geared for transcendence. In fact, he says it's a crime. It's a sin against the universe to hold such creatures within fixed roles. And Paul Rosenberg says, make no mistake. The entire fear-driven conformity complex exists precisely to hold you in a non-threatening state, unable to consider any other possibility. Now, some people might say, well, that's just too dramatic, trying to keep me in there as a placeholder. But I joke around, and I guess other people joke around, too. You know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, I feel like a drone, you know, I feel like a worker bee more often than not. I'm not above referring to myself as a headphone insert. Just because sometimes it's felt that way. Now, sadly, he says this isn't too dramatic a characterization. What people actually do falls horrifyingly short of what they're capable of doing. Pretty much every thinker of note has seen that much. We have a long, long way to go. We have a long way to grow. And he says being a placeholder is what keeps us away from most most of it. Treating the system of the day as a great human accomplishment is like a six year old proclaiming he's the fastest runner in the world because he can beat his little brother. Really. And Paul says, please understand the tragedy of placeholding applies to people of most types. If you're poor, you concede to being a victim and you get paid meagerly for holding that place. If you're rich, you glorify the system as it is, make the requisite donations, and encourage the people below you to love the system. That's your place. So Paul Rosenberg says, what I'm telling you is that the whole thing is a waste. A thousand years from now, people will look back and wonder how people could play along with it. Just like we look at people who treated bloodletting as a valid uh, medical procedure or who believed vehemently in the divine right of kings. So no, this isn't too dramatic. Now, others might say, okay, but I need the job. Well, he says jobs are, for the vast majority of us, practical necessities at some point. But by itself, that's not a problem. The problem is when the job becomes the primary and you become the secondary. So long as the job is something you use, it's not a problem. When the job becomes larger than you, it is a problem. To state it very simply, we should use the world. The world shouldn't use us. You can also keep in mind that the job needs you too. You're not some weakling clinging to a job because without it, you'd be terrified and powerless. We are producers not beggars. Our work has value. Long-term being entrepreneurial might be better for you since it gives you greater control, but that's not a requirement. Just don't forget the fundamental. We use the world. The world doesn't use us. Now, if that leaves you wondering, okay, so what are we supposed to do? Well, Paul Rosenberg says what we're supposed to do is live according to our own judgment and to hone our own judgment. Now, the world is rigged against that, of course, making it harder than it should be. So he says, I'm going to devote the rest of this post to thoughts that may help. Please go through these slowly and grasp them well. If any of them strike you, copy them and spend time with them. They're resonating, they're resonating with you for some reason, and that's a reason worth pursuing. So here they are with his best wishes. He starts with a quote from Rollo May every human being must have a point at which he stands against the culture where he says, this is me and the world be damned. Howard Thurman said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is more people that have come alive. Werner Erhard said, most of our notions about the world come from a set of assumptions which we take for granted and which for the most part we don't examine or question. Here's a great quote from Carl Jung. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. They'll practice Indian yoga and all its exercises, observe a strict regimen of diet, learn the theosophy of the heart, or mechanically repeat mystic texts from the literature of the whole world, all because they cannot get on with themselves, and have not the slightest faith that anything useful could ever come out of their own souls. Here's a quote from Goethe. I became healthy while creating. And here's another from James Baldwin. I would like us to do something unprecedented to create ourselves without finding it necessary to create an enemy. Maxwell Maltz said, Life should be an exciting adventure. The sun should rise within you each day in terms of the richness of your feelings and the sharpness of your perceptions. You should carve out goals for yourself that will inspire you to enthusiastic action. Francis Bacon said, there's no comparison between that which is lost by not succeeding and that which is lost by not trying. Mary Wollstonecraft said, nothing I am sure calls forth the faculty so much as the being obliged to struggle with the world. Well, how does that ring true? Joseph Campbell said, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on someone else's path. (laughs) Whoa, that one stung. But it does ring true. John Green said, what's the point of being alive if you don't at least try to do something remarkable? Sam Keen said, it's the vocation of each person to become unique. Nikolai Berdyaev, Berdyaev said, in every creative conception, there's an element of primeval freedom. Fathomless, undetermined by anything, not proceeding from God, but ascending toward God. Abraham Maslow said, I can certainly say that descriptively healthy human beings do not like to be controlled. Mike Krasuski said, The truth is that many people set rules to keep from making decisions. Here's one from Albert Einstein. The most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead, a snuffed out candle. And finally, a quote from Bruce Lee, the meaning of life is that it is to be lived. It is not to be traded and conceptualized and squeezed into a pattern of systems. Now, I don't know how that speaks to you. I don't know if it, if it gives you, you know, a sense of, well, maybe I should look at things slightly different, but I will tell you that, uh, it's going to sound like blame here, but, I believe that the Prussian education model teaches us to find our place in society, to to be that placeholder. And that's something that takes uh, an act of willpower to break out of. I mean, come on, this is a model that was invented in the early 19th century, and it was invented for the purpose of molding people into cannon fodder. Basically, people who are good at taking direction. Clerks who know how to work within their realm as clerks. Miners who know how to go out and dig the coal. You know, that's right. Soldiers who will obey orders without question. And it turned out to be very successful. I mean, within 100 years, Prussia became the most powerful country in Europe. Other states copied and implemented this model. Horace Mann brought it back to the United States after visiting Prussia in about 1840. So my point isn't, okay, so let's sit here and rag on the, on the American education system. I'm just saying that uh, there are whole systems that are constructed keeping us in our place. But I'm also going to point out there's nothing quite like finding something that is yours uniquely, your mission, your call, your purpose, and then stepping up and doing it. And it's not going to be something that can happen because you stayed the same. It's got to be something that takes place because you were willing to embrace challenges, face them head-on, knock off your rough edges, and become a polished individual, a refined individual, as in, uh, you know, purged of your dross. But when you do it, life takes on a much deeper happiness,
0: joy, and purpose, and that in and of itself is worth it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to give a quick shout-out
1: here to my sponsors. They include Monticello College.org, LifesavingFood.com, Birelli.com, and also TMCPNation.com. That would be the Modern Conservative Podcast. It's my friend John Harvey. Actually, I will be having him on the show Thursday. If you haven't heard John, I, this is a guy I would encourage you. Give a listen to him. He is... Uh, he is very straightforward. This is one of the things I love best about him is you don't have to sit there and guess what is he really trying to say? John will tell you exactly what's on his mind. He's also very courageous and willing to stand up to the people who would uh, like to see him uh, basically put in a place that they have chosen for him. No, sir, that is not John. And he's got some very cool swag, which is the reason why I have him listed on uh, on my sponsor list. If you go and check out his website, you decide, hey, I want to get some of that. If you uh, purchase $100 worth of merchandise, you get free shipping and they will throw in a very nice titanium wallet that is a free gift for you. But I mean, it's really nice. Hats, shirts, things like this. So, I'm not going to try to guilt you here. And it it may sound like, you know, there's some scolding going on, but I read an essay that just, it it, it really kind of made me stop in my tracks. Now, I'll confess, I did not watch the Super Bowl on Sunday. It's funny. I was I was talking to my biological dad, and asked him, "Hey, are you uh are you watching the Super Bowl?" He goes, "Well, I I did tune in for the halftime show." I said, "And how was that?" He says, "It was a lot of uh, pelvic thrusting set to music." <laughs> and I thought, "Well, that kind of describes where where entertainment is going these days." And you know, I I haven't seen it myself, but uh, basically the last few halftime shows I've seen, I I don't think that's a a, a bad. Way to describe what a lot of the dancing tends to look like. Here's the thing, though: if you're concerned about the woke takeover of Americans, inst- America's institutions and pastimes, but you still watched the Super Bowl, you might be sending mixed signals. And Robin Itzler reminds us that you can't have it both ways. Taking the conservative fight to the culture means sometimes you've got to draw the line and say, you know what, I'm not going to participate in that. Robin Itzler says, if you're one of the millions of conservatives who watched on February 12th when the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35 in Super Bowl uh, 52, or 57 rather, sorry, shame on you. Conservatives can't have it both ways. Before progressives hijacked American traditions, Super Bowl Sunday was a time when family and friends got together to watch the big game. Even if you didn't know the difference between a football and a footstool, you still had a fun time at the party eating delicious foods that clogged your arteries. Everybody watched the creative commercials, some a one-time airing just for the event, and the fantastic halftime show was a mini-concert featuring our favorite performers. But that was before the NFL was taken over by progressives, allowing players to insult the United States of America by taking a knee during the Star-Spangled Banner, Then the NFL allowed the so-called Black Anthem to be sung before our national anthem. And, of course, its halftime performances started featuring entertainers who regularly mocked traditional conservative values, especially patriotic values. And with that, conservatives still watched the Super Bowl. How can these conservatives expect to stop our nation's march to Marxism when they won't even give up four hours to make a patriotic statement? Imagine the message that would have been sent if Sunday Super Bowl wasn't attended or watched by America First Patriots, about half the country. But many conservatives watched the game. So the conclusion is, progressives and rhinos see that Patriots talk the talk, but they rarely walk the walk. That's why our country is in such a mess. Now, The author here goes on to say kudos to Tony Roman, the owner of Basilico's Pasta e Vino in Hunting Beach, California, for refusing to show the Super Bowl at his restaurant's bar and making sure that everyone knew why. During communist California's insane lockdown that put thousands of small businesses out of business, this highly regarded patriot kept his unique rustic Italian homestyle cooking eatery open, insisting it was a mask-free zone. What if thousands of other small businesses had done the same as Roman? Governor Gavin Hargel Newsom would have had difficulty forcing his totalitarian mandates on the state's 39 million residents if more business owners had refused to lock down or force their customers to wear useless masks. So it's no surprise that the day before Super Bowl Sunday, Roman posted this on Brasilico's Instagram account. We are open tomorrow, meaning Sunday, but there will once again be no Super Bowl here. The NFL has gone from once being a great unifying tradition, proudly showcasing American patriotism and culture, to now promoting a divisive and aggressive woke agenda. At halftime, you will witness the NFL glorify a performer who just a few years ago strongly supported kneeling during the national anthem and disrespecting the American flag, saying she had no interest in participating in the Super Bowl, claiming the NFL did nothing for her people, and she would not sell out, refusing to be of service to the league in any way. So what changed? Well, what changed is the NFL surrendered to the enemy in your behalf, everything you believe in with it, knowing in the end that you would be the one selling out, still tuning into their left wing brainwashing. And don't be confused by the military color guard and jets flying over the stadium after the anthem. The NFL wants it both ways and they're trying to fool you only when they cancel the black national anthem play only one anthem and erase the so-called social justice messages trying to guilt you emblazoned in the end zones and on the backs of the helmets should anyone even reconsider paying attention to their product again until then if you call yourself an american patriot and you watch the super bowl tomorrow then you support everything you say you're against and we don't want to hear you whining about the enemy and the destruction of this country ever again When fighting to defend your beliefs, values, and principles when they're under attack, don't be like them. You can't have it both ways. You either stand for what you believe in, or you don't. Words are weak, he says, prove it with action. Brave American men before you have risked and sacrificed everything for what this country stands for. So you can prove your allegiance by sacrificing three or four effing hours. Because if you're still watching when the traitor halftime performer takes a knee, then it's already too late. Turn that crap off before it begins. Your Americans act like it. Now, again, this is from the owner of Basilico's Instagram and a restaurant there. Conservatives who watch the Super Bowl, says Robin Itzler, are part of the problem. And I bet some of them are spending today at Disneyland. Now, again, I, I get it if you're feeling like mine. This is a big guilt trip being laid on us. But there is a point there. And I'm not saying, boy, you should live your life and then just boycott everything and everyone that uh, doesn't agree with you. But, you know, if, if the, the viewership numbers are, are still very high, it does kind of send a message that people will tune in no matter what. I mean, I look at what's happened to CNN. You know, I think back, uh, you know, 30 years ago. When the first Gulf War was taking place and CNN suddenly became this incredible force with round-the-clock news, you could go 24-7 to CNN and have a pretty good idea of what was going on. Now, yeah, there was, you know, there's some slant, but they were a force to be reckoned with. They grew to be a worldwide, you know, force for information. But since they have become just kind of a, a woke platform, just spouting platitudes of the woke and Marxist left, their numbers have dropped off precipitously. I mean, they're, they're going the way of the newspaper. Smaller, thinner, you know, there's just not much left. And it hurts them. I mean, they've had to lay off a bunch of people. I'm not gloating about it. I'm just saying they've they've had to cut way back because their ratings reflect that people are rejecting what they're doing. Yeah, there are still enough who tune in that somehow they're staying afloat. But if people turn their backs on the NFL or Major League Baseball or, you know, the NBA, when they start pushing woke stuff, I don't think it would take very long for uh, for the message to get across. And personally, look, I'm not going to say I'm better than everybody because I just ignore them all. I do have better ways to spend my time. Now look, if I if a friend says, "Hey, you want to sit down and watch the game?" very likely I would sit down and and enjoy the time with them. But one of the reasons I don't feel like I'm missing much is because there's just so much woke garbage that's been shoehorned into every event. I don't watch Disney anymore. We we got rid of our Disney Plus subscription a long time ago. And and I'm really glad because holy cow, the indoctrination that's coming through, you know, what used to be a, a pretty safe and reliable entertainment source for kids. It's, it's just pure evil at this point. Hollywood, the movies, I, I find, I have very, very little to offer me. Once in a great while, I actually find time to sit down and say, okay, let's see if there's any good movies to watch. And when I, you know, start to go through Netflix or Hulu and, and just see what they have, again, there's just tons of woke stuff and and I just can't help but feel like this is, this is a waste of my time. Now, maybe, you know, you see it differently, and that's okay. I'm not telling you're a bad person or you're stupid if you enjoy, you know, what the NFL has to offer or what Hollywood's putting out there. But you do have to wonder about the message that you're sending by participating in and consuming what they're giving you. Because if they're feeding you, you know, ideologically-laced uh, content... At
0: some level, you've got to say, well, I'm accepting it. You don't have to accept it, though. This is The Brian Hyde Show.